Hey, TYT, I'm Nomi Kantz. We're here at the nation's headquarters in Manhattan with Sarah Leonard, who is a features editor at The Nation, and she is the co-editor of The Future We Want. Uh, also, we've been, we've, you know, we've, we've, had, we've been on before. Yeah, yeah. We've been on some no, stages we're talking. with this. Yeah. yeah. At yeah. the People's Summit. The People's Summit, way yeah. back. Yeah. It was, it was great. We were talking about movement work, and she's done a lot mm-hmm. of work in, uh, in reporting on movements around the world. Yeah, yeah. Spent some time in Greece. You did. I'm jealous. Next time we're going to have to go together. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. I, I like it. I mean, we could do some reporting and eating yeah. and be fun. But we are here to talk about what you wrote about in the November issue of The Nation. Uh, you, you wrote a feature on the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And clearly the Me Too movement has not died down. It didn't calm down over the holidays. Every day you hear about new people who have been brought into the Me Too movement. Um, where, what was the origin of the Me Too movement? Like, Where, where was the intent, the, the, the beginning of the Me Too movement? Well, we can, of course, trace it to the Weinstein moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I tried to say in The Nation was after the election, women who felt that they had been very comfortable suddenly felt very unsafe um, and went and protested when maybe they hadn't done that before and uh, began to create a narrative that the real resistance to Trump was going to be women. Mm -hmm. And I think that Me Too drew on a lot of that energy a lot of that rage, the, the sort of respect a lot of people thought they were entitled to, actually can be thrown in the trash <laughs> with the moment's notice. Um, and what I've been sort of interested in is given that, um, and given that uh, the people who are at the Women's March typically have said, you know, we women as a whole resist this sort of sexism, what I'm interested in is will the Me Too movement actually include everybody? Hmm. Or will it sort of stick to the realms of media, entertainment, those sorts of things, when we know that actually this sort of behavior pervades our entire economy um, and has been something that working class women have been fighting on their own without a lot of glamorous media attention for a pretty long time. Actually, you know, forever. Forever. Uh, We'll get to that in a second, the working class. But, you know, the, the beginning of the Me Too movement seemed to be very much about workplace, um, how, how somebody you work with treats you, and specifically with Harvey Weinstein, he was using his power um, in sex, sexual advancements, and in many cases assault uh, as a form of power over people who were dependent on his power. Yeah. Has it gone beyond that? Is it, are there other scandals that seem to be catching wave that are just sexual scandals or issues that have nothing to do with workplace uh, behaviors and attitudes? In the realm of, of feminism mm-hmm. or? Me too. I mean, me too. It's, it seems to be an umbrella now for more than just that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that what people are discovering is that actually, since as everyone likes to say, this is about power, not sex, mm-hmm. um, you actually can't even solve this problem unless you look at this wide range of problems with how we work, including really extreme power dynamics. I mean, if you look at the reason Weinstein was allowed to operate the way he was, it's not just because he's a man, it's not just because he's a creep, um, it's because he had any, he played an immense gatekeeper role. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the men we've seen go down played those gatekeeping roles. And so they were able to extract a lot um, because women were afraid they wouldn't make it into whatever industry they worked in. I think some of the responses we're seeing, especially um, 
in sort of, if you look at Hollywood, for example, um, people are thinking, well, women should head a production company. We should actually redistribute power in some way. And that, I think, really remains to be seen. It's actually a lot easier to get names on a petition, although that's good. It's easier to found a nonprofit, which is also good, um, than to actually shake up a pretty powerful industry that has a lot of entrenched interests that has no, no real interest in restructuring itself. And so the risk is that the Me Too stuff becomes a sort of branding that makes the industry look socially conscious, but actually doesn't redistri redistribute power that much. And so I think we're looking at what are the sort of changes well beyond you know, preventing people from grabbing women in the workplace that would be required to actually feel at all equal. It's interesting you talk about redistributing power because um, and this branding mechanism, because you've seen this with other movements. You saw it with the environmental movement. You've seen, I mean, there's, there's quite a few movements yeah. that it's almost like the, the, the brand has been co-opted and it's been used as, as a weapon yeah. um, to serve those who are in power. Yeah. So then what are some of the critical things that need to be done other than just hiring more women and, and putting them in executive positions? Well, that is a great, um, a great thing to talk about because that is one thing that's been suggested, right? Is like, well, we need more female CEOs and so forth. The thing is, part of the evidence we've seen lately shows that, that where that's been tried, that doesn't necessarily work. So if you look at um, some of the Silicon Valley companies that are headed up by women, um, the head of Thinks, um, you know, period proof underwear, the quintessential feminist product, um, she, um, actually directly sexually harassed her employees um, and would like grope people and things like that um, because she's exerting power, mm. unchecked power. And her employees said that, you know, she's been um, taken to task for this in the media at this point. Another um, female Silicon Valley CEO was denying pregnancy leave to her employees. And so what you see, of course, is that you know, the interests of someone, a CEO, are always going to outweigh her sort of like theoretical ethics um, about protecting women. Um, and especially in Silicon Valley, I think we've seen the most extreme examples because this is sort of the cult of the founder, right? Whoever founded it is immensely more important, sort of celebrated and important and everyone else is disposable. And under those conditions, you're always going to see harassment. Um, most recently, of course, we've seen it in the Clinton campaign. Um, it turns out that the wonderfully named Bernd Strider um, was a harasser. And, that and he was also a religious advisor. He was a spiritual advisor on the campaign, which... It's past the point of parody. Yeah. I mean, it's really, this is a special one. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, Hillary being the head of that campaign did not result in him being fired. So that's a bad solution. Um, and so what we're talking about is reducing power differentials, not just putting different people in those powerful positions. And so when we get to that, you know, we want to be talking about, of course, unions. We want to be talking about power in the workplace. Um, and, you know, we actually have a lot of the mechanisms for, for doing that. Um, that's not a mystery, actually. Um, and one example that I think is particularly amazing is the coalition of Immokalee workers who are farm workers in Florida. Um, they forced companies who buy tomatoes for fast food um, to agree to their 
contract, which involved fair wages and all sorts of things, but also had a sexual harassment provision. Mm. Um, and since they got that passed, they've gotten um, 23 managers disciplined and nine fired wow. because they established their power. The fast food companies need them. They force them into this contract because they need them. Um, and then they were forward-looking enough that they incorporated what is truly a bread and butter issue, yeah. which is protection for women against harassment, or anybody for that matter. And so those sorts of things are actually really, really powerful, um, but hard. They're hard. And so I think we need to be thinking about those sorts of organizing efforts um, when we think about how we're going to put an end to harassment. It, it just, what sticks out to me is it's just this intersectional politics that keeps on popping up. Um, over the past you know, two years, it's been so apparent. It's Kind of, it's gone beyond the base activists, but you know maybe the the women that went to the women's march now see things through the lens of economics more than they would have maybe two years ago, when Secretary Clinton was forced to support the fifteen dollar minimum wage. I mean, who does that help the most? It helps women, yeah, and women of color in particular, Absolutely. and fast food workers. I mean, they were the ones organizing. Are there more policies like this that, because of this moment of incredible activism, can be used as leverage? towards those who are in power to get them on board. You know, the perfect example is Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders using Medicare for All, for all as a tool to organize a bunch of people who probably want to be president. Absolutely. Yeah, and Medicare for All is amazing because that's actually something that unites an enormous swath of Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone struggles with health care. Um, and there are a few um, smaller policies that are related directly to Me Too so, for example, uh, tipped workers mm -hmm. in many states make the tipped minimum wage, which is just you're going to have a really low minimum wage because you're going to make all these tips on top, mm -hmm. and that will get you up to the real minimum wage, which is, of course, horrible because it puts workers at the mercy of the customer. Yep. And if you're a waitress, it's a recipe for sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, which does a lot of organizing, restaurant workers, they put out a report saying that restaurant workers, the majority of them get harassed every single week. Mm -hmm. And that's just life. Mm -hmm. um, so something they've been advocating for is getting rid of the tipped minimum wage, um, making sure that everybody gets at least the normal minimum wage, which should be a given. Um, and so that's a policy that looks like a simple piece of economics that would absolutely change the terrain for sexual harassment in that industry. And I think that's something that all kinds of people can get behind. So mm -hmm. um, I believe Jane Fonda is on their board. You know, we're going to get like Hollywood Me Too to like back those mm -hmm. projects. That's actually valuable. That's right. something that that sort of power and money and visibility is really good for. Like, mm -hmm. get behind that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think when we think about um, some of the half measures that are taken in Hollywood, and it's a little frustrating to look at this very elite sphere grappling with a problem that actually we all grapple with, mm -hmm. you can see like what solidarity might actually mean, um, which would be getting behind worker struggles and being like, oh, what are you already doing? Oh, like can we can we just like quietly back that? Right. Um, that's more useful than a lot of the visibility work being done. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, the domestic workers in multiple states have passed bills of rights to protect mm -hmm. them. Um, domestic workers often even live in people's homes. It makes them really vulnerable. And domestic workers in America, are, the vast majority are immigrant women of color. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so this is, this is really tough. And so the domestic workers have done amazing organizing work. You mentioned being vulnerable in the home. There are so many aspects of employment. Uh, the Harvey Weinstein situation is a perfect example, even though it was Hollywood, where he was meeting with people outside the confines of a building, like you know where the headquarters was, the Weinstein headquarters. It was in hotel rooms. It was at Sundance. And that is where a lot of the business is conducted, because there aren't offices. It's yeah. where you have these big suites and you have these meetings. The same thing happens at political conventions and conferences. Oftentimes, it's out of the norm. You can't just walk in the HR on the seventh floor yeah. and file a complaint. How are, what kind of policy changes can be put in place to, to protect those scenarios other than waiting for a Harvey Weinstein moment? Yeah, now that's hard. So, you know, give every woman mace. Um, <laughs> but they shouldn't have to. I mean, that's ultimately the of issue. Of course. You know, we should, as women, not have to arm ourselves to protect ourselves from the Indeed. people we are supposed to trust. Yes. Um, and. You know, you women need to be protected by institutions that they're part of, right? And so, for example, I work here at The Nation. We're a union shop. We have a contract. And one thing we did was uh, write part of the contract ourselves so that we are protected not just against anyone in the workplace, managers, whatever, but anyone we come into contact with in the course of work. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very important provision for us because we work with all kinds of people outside the office. Um, the Screen Actors Guild did a shockingly bad job of protecting anyone mm. um, who is a member. Um, you know, was you know just pathetically complicit in this entire system, um, and that is a union that you know could be renovated. Um, you know, it's been all downhill since Reagan was the head of it, um, <laughs> back when he was a union guy. Um, and so those sorts of institutions actually have a lot of mechanisms to protect people, not just in the workplace, that people often neglect or um, don't, don't realize they have access to. Um, when it comes to just you know, getting rid of people like Harvey Weinstein, I mean, the sorts of support we're seeing uh, right now because he got caught, finally, um, and publicly humiliated, um, you know, that has allowed women to come forward. We need institutionalized support. So mm -hmm. it's not just in these moments of outpouring mm -hmm. that it becomes possible to talk about it. And notably, Harvey Weinstein, one reason a lot of people think this finally came out in the Times and the New Yorker was his star was falling. You know, he mm -hmm. wasn't quite as powerful as he had been. You know, people weren't quite as afraid of him, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you have this reign of terror, that's only possible when you have immense power. What I learned from reading the New Yorker story was the rich have access to tools that I didn't even know existed. I'm like, oh, you can hire a Mossad agent to pretend to be someone else. <laughs> like, I didn't even know that was on the table myself. <laughs> um, you know, and so that is born of extreme inequality, right? That is a function of extreme inequality. And so I don't want to say that, you know, the only answer to sexual harassment is a revolution. But it's, I think, pretty straightforward to see that when you um, produce these sorts of extreme differentials, people do crazy shit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people have access to things they shouldn't have. Um, so 
you know, I think that's a big picture. And then at a sort of lower level, the sorts of institutions like unions and stuff need to prioritize what women actually need and not pretend that sexual harassment and things like that are some side issue, which is ridiculous. I mean, unions are, are unbelievably political, and they're imperfect. Let's let's just be real. You know, you have a, a whole wide array of different types of unions. Absolutely. It, it, because of the politics of unions, um, I mean, from my perspective, I think that some of these things aren't put out front because of the politics, because, you know, we have to support this person, and it's there's this scenario where our funding is dependent on this person being in office, and sure. if yeah. we push back at them on this, then we may not be the recipient of their funding yeah. or their contracts. Um, how can these unions be revolutionary when the structure that they operate in is also a power dynamic between that person who's controlling the power? That is a million dollar question. Oh man, you don't have the answer? <laughs> Come on. Um, well, I mean, unions have had plenty of their own problems with sexism and harassment. And I'm not trying to romanticize that. I don't want to romanticize that because there's a lot of work to be done there. And I talked to Ellen Bravo, who is an early member of 9 to 5, um, which was an organization devoted to women's rights at work and quite left. Yeah. Um, and so one thing she would do, is she would go and do these trainings for unions that had had problems with sexism or harassment. And she would, you know, she'd typically get called in when there had been a problem. So they didn't really want to see her. You know, it'd be like like a hundred male firefighters and one woman and they'd be like, we really don't want to be here. And she'd be like, sit down. But. <laughs> Um, you know, part of what she would tell them, of course, is when you, um, you know, treat your fellow workers badly and you humiliate the women and you create all these rifts within your workplace, you're just helping the boss. You're weakening your own bargaining position by dividing the shop. Mm. And of course, like, we would want all those men to just realize that morally, as good humans, they should not treat women terribly. That's like step two. Step one is understanding their mutual interest. And that's where solidarity comes from. And once you build that solidarity, once you understand those mutual interests, people tend to develop a lot more empathy. And then you can get to those sort of deeper ethical questions. But that, that question of solidarity is something she was really able to impress on the shops that she went to. And so we think about that in our own union here, you know, making sure that um, we are self-regulating and that we are taking care of each other mm -hmm. um, because that's what makes us strong. And I think that good unions understand that. Now, we've seen plenty of problems in unions lately. You know, the Fight for 15 campaign, the architect of that campaign had to be fired for sexual harassment. Yeah. That sucked. Um, and it's a reminder, actually, that we have to make the institutions that fight for change strong and free of this kind of bullshit if we're going to win the campaigns we want to win. Because mm -hmm. you know that it's not just we lose this guy who is valuable because he's doing this stuff. It's how many women did he keep out of that campaign? How many brilliant minds did we lose because he harassed them? Right. And we have to think about that, how much we're losing because of that. And so I think that you know, it really behooves us to be doing this internal reflection at the same time. I mean, you're so right about those power dynamics, and it's tough. Internally, um, there are these new trainings that a lot of employers are putting their employees through, and some that are not so new. And what we also learned through the last few months is that a lot of 
executives have gone through trainings and either, I mean, they haven't worked, like, just haven't worked, clearly. <laughs> and some of it, I think, is just like a, there's a generational thing. There's how do you shift the culture beyond the training? Like, mm -hmm. are the trainings good enough? Do we need to rethink how we train? And then through that, like, how does the culture, if you've been grabbing people's butts for you know, <laughs> 75 years, it's, how do you change that person? <laughs> like, is it going to happen overnight or worse? Yeah, I mean, if they've been grabbing people's butts for 75 years, they should probably stay home. Yeah. But <laughs> that said. But what if they're um, a Pulitzer or what if they're president? I mean, there's so many scenarios. Right. It was the same. It's well, the then Bill you Clinton should definitely argument. stay home. But, well, the Bill Clinton argument. We can't yeah. put the country at national, you know, there's, there's, in a, through a national crisis because this person has a sexual problem. Right. Real arguments people are making, or the Al Franken argument. Right. I mean, what I would say is, so on the trainings front, yeah. one thing about trainings is that they're typically produced by HR to protect the company. A lot of people don't understand that HR only exists to protect the company from liability. It's mm -hmm. not there to help you solve your problems in some sort of neutral way. Mm -hmm. So when these things are in their hands, they're never good. Um, and here with our union, one thing we did was we included in our sexual harassment language in our contract, um, you know, that there would have to be a training, but that we were involved in picking the trainer, you know. And so that's step one, like having that actually be effective and not just like a liability lecture. Mm -hmm. um, and then another part of it um, in terms of changing the culture, there's been a lot of criticism of, you know, the shitty media men list and other forms of outing people without... What's the shitty media men list for yes. those who don't know? Very I obviously, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I work in media, but it's embarrassing. <laughs> um, so the shitty media men list was um, a spreadsheet that was passed around among women um, that had men's names and what they had done and it was anonymous and you know it hadn't been all reported out these were people's personal um, experiences and reflections in the spreadsheet um, and it caused a big uproar because of course you know people would say it's not fair to put people's names on some sort of public list without any kind of process you know this is totally unfair and terrible things are going to happen to people and at the beginning, I also wondered that. Like, this is a really easy way to get revenge on someone, an anonymous spreadsheet. And it actually turned out, I thought, to create the sort of culture shift or begin it in this particular industry that you're talking about, where it made people so uncomfortable that people had to rethink what was normal and whether they had been behaving in ways that had crossed the line. It scared people. Mm -hmm. And then people had to think. And what actually came out of that spreadsheet in my experience was, you know, there were a couple of people on it who like really hadn't done anything and typically their HR would look into them and then be like, you're fine. The worst of them have by and large had stories written about them. People like Leon Wieseltier, Hamilton Fish, mm -hmm. um, who were truly, you know, did bad things to women. Um, and they ended up um, with seriously reported well-sourced newspaper articles that you know resulted from like being alerted by the spreadsheet but were reported out with as much rigor as anything else right. is and so I it's actually, like a tip basically totally you get a tip and then you research it totally and I think that actually created a culture shift that would not have been achieved by a sort of nicer and more proper method and the sort of fear that men felt around that list, I think, is something women feel every day. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. 
that was sort of, I thought, a, a turning point in this industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I think that says a lot about how we could actually change cultures. You know, got a, just a little, little fear. And, and with that, I mean, through the trainings, there are some men who are fully aware of what their behaviors are, but because they get away with it, because they have problems in many aspects of how these scenarios happen. But then there are a lot of men who didn't understand or know mm-hmm. that taking out uh, a junior member of their team for a dinner for several hours and talking about personal stuff is against the rules. Yeah. But because, you know, we work with people and I mean, you become close to them and you're around them, it could be interpreted in different ways. That's against the rules. Sure. I mean, there are always going to be things in some sort of gray zone yeah. that are not super egregious that, you know, someone misunderstood. But, of course, that's, that's part of life. Right. Um, and I think a misconception of the Me Too moment is that women want men to sit in like sterile boxes and like never look at them and there's no way they can play by the rules because we're always just trying to catch them it's like no like most of what was investigated so far has been either egregious or has been you know they've confirmed what they knew on the record and there's a lot more behind it that made it worth investigating in the first place um so you know my sense is that there should always be um, ways of educating people and helping people change mm-hmm. who are serious about it. There are some people, of course, who always say, like, oh, I didn't know. It's like, well, then why were you hiding it by, like, right. deleting the text messages or going to, like, a weird hotel in, like, a weird part of town? Like, what? you obviously knew you were doing yeah. something wrong, you know? Um, but I think if people are earnest about um, learning and changing, you know, that's something we believe in. You know, and so making resources available, whether that's through, sometimes that's through a workplace, sometimes that can be through an outside organization that, you know, unions can do trainings on that for sure. Um, well, maybe you need to read some books, talk to some friends, you know, maybe you need a program. I don't know. But one important thing is that, you know, we have, we be able to think um, in sort of degrees. You know, there are people who need to be fired. And there are people who need to be put on leave and made to go through a program. You right. know? And there's a difference. Um, and I think that actually most women are thinking about that. Um, and something that frustrates me about some of the coverage is when we're accused of only being able to think of you know, throwing men off the dock into the East River. It's like, well, we live with men every day, actually. You know? And with that being said, I, I recall a uh, a political scandal maybe like six or seven years ago, the former mayor of San Diego, if you recall, had to step down for, it was, it was a Me Too scandal before we used the term Me Too. Yeah. But it was older women who had worked in his office for you know decades or used to work in his office who came out and then it was the domino effect where they, you know, one came out, another came out, another came out. And then once it was clear that he had an issue, the younger women started to come out and sharing their stories. But because there was a fear of being terminated or being reprimanded or losing their jobs, I mean, ultimately, when we talk about the economics of this, people who don't have power, less power, or do not have a soapbox or can't just, you know, if they lose their job, they lose their job and they can't pay their rent or or worse. 
how do we, do you, do you think that maybe we're at this turning point now where there are more young women coming out and sharing their stories or, or do we have a lot of work to do still? Well, I mean, we, we definitely have a lot of work to do, but something notable about the spreadsheet was it was mostly young women yeah. and it was anonymous. And, so and media jobs don't pay a lot. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time when you're young, you're really cobbling stuff together. Yeah. Um, and you depend on the goodwill of editors or older writers. So, um, you know, I think younger women are definitely starting to come out, but they remain almost inherently the most vulnerable um, because they're usually at the beginning of their careers um, or, you know, don't have a big support network. Mm -hmm. And that means that you are, you are at, at the greatest amount of risk. I think that's one reason it behooves people who are in a more secure position, um, and I would count myself among, among uh, those people in the sense I have a job and I have a union, you know, to, to come forward when we see things and to help people who, you know, maybe we know who are in a less advantageous position. Because I think we all remember being super young and kind of freaked out and not knowing if it's your fault and not knowing how to deal with it. Um, you know, and it behooves us to keep talking about it and to speak up when we see things um, and to offer people real solutions. I mean, in my industry, we've seen all these digital places unionizing, and that's something I always talk about Washington with people. Post, just yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something I try to always put on the table. Like, you know, you don't think about this immediately. You're thinking about wages and mm -hmm. stuff. But think about this. Think about how much safer you'll feel. And so I think that's especially important. Like the younger you are, the more important that is to have. Sarah, this is a fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm sure we can go on for hours talking about this. Next time in Greece. Next time in Greece, I, you know, there's a lot of Me Too scandals waiting to happen in Greece. I suspect. I'm just, I mean. Not that they're unique, but. It's a global phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon, yeah. yeah. We can go investigate over there, over octopus. Great. <laughs> All right, Sarah, thank you so much. I appreciate your thank time. Thank you, it's great to see you.